I love how Lauren made sure before we sang about new wine and new power that you knew Jesus said that before, uh, before she did. So don't at us today uh, singing about wine in worship. Hey, I walked to work today. I've been walking to work, I think, every Sunday for a good while now. I live seven-tenths of a mile uh, from here, my front door to this front door to that front door. Seven-tenths of a mile, so why not work, right, to reduce my carbon footprint, yada, yada, yada. So I've been walking. I'm like, hey, today, I'm, I told Susan, I delightedly exclaimed that I'll be walking again today. She doubted me. And I said, well, if, I, if you see me on your, on your way, you know, pick me up. And uh, she did about halfway, and she, she pulled a Linda Ronstadt. You know what I'm talking about, blew by you? She just she blew by me right there. Just kept, I, she's gonna, she'll be here at 11. She's, she's gonna say that she actually checked on me, but it was so subtle. I think she just went on. But anyway, I got here. It was actually toasty because I covered the noggin. If you cover the noggin, 80% of heat escapes from the noggin. You get this covered. Uh, you'll be fine. Hey, I got a sermon title for you today. It's this. It's on the screen for you in the house and you at home. It's this. Better and brighter. We've been talking about uh, making disciples, about being disciples. I think you got to be a disciple before you make a disciple. Would you agree? But as we're talking about uh, not just being Christians, not just being casual Christians, nominal Christians, not being an average church, but moving toward greatness, not for ourselves, but for God, then we, um, it, it makes sense to, stands to reason that we would, you and me, we would be better and brighter. Let me explain. Jesus talked about salt and light. Most of you know that. Now you're clued in a little bit, but Jesus uh, talked about salt. He said, if salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? Would you agree? If the light is hidden under a bushel or a bucket, what good is that light? What does salt do? It makes things better. What does light do? It makes things brighter. Here's what I'm submitting to you at the outset with the sermon title is that I believe you, when you follow Jesus, ought to be better and brighter. And I think you in becoming a disciple and following Jesus ought to make the world better and brighter. That's the idea. So if salt has lost its favor, let me ask you, how many of you love a good filet mignon? Just raise your hand. Even at home, we can't see you, but play along. You love a good filet mignon. How many of you, uh, my carnivores are here in the house today, obviously. How many of you are vegetables only, sort of a Tom Brady type of diet? Uh, Anybody? Well, even if you are, no no one's a no one has enough courage to admit that. But uh, if you're vegetables only or, you know, not a meat person, uh, you still need some salt. You still need some salt. And here's the thing about salt. A lot of times you don't even know it's there. Now, Mississippians get too much of it, okay? So let me say that. We've got a lot of doctors in the house. Mississippians get too much of it, but salt adds flavor. And even if you don't know it's there, like it's there, and you want it to be there, it makes it better. It adds flavor. And so where you and I go, if we're becoming little Christ, we make things better, we make things brighter. We don't have to, you know, salt doesn't make any noise, and salt's not the main dish, and salt doesn't point to itself, it shines a light. It makes a flavor. It, it brings something better. And that's this idea of uh, following Jesus being better and brighter. The, in the Bible, really from Genesis to Revelation macro here, there is a panoramic idea of two cities. Now, some church fathers have put some words to this city of God, city of man, but there's a reference to the city of God, which is a whole lot in Revelation and then uh, Genesis as well, and then city of man. And the, the, the idea, the reference biblically is uh, the spirit of Babylon is in the city of man or the city of the world. And Genesis 11 forward depicts this, the spirit of this. It says this, then they said, they're scheming, they're scheming, they got some plans. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Here's the kicker, so that we may make a name for ourselves. 
You know, God created cities. God loves cities. Satan perverts cities. But let us make this for ourselves. Here's what we struggle with in becoming a disciple. Self, 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 self. Self, 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 self. Do you realize how often you live that way? Me too. Self, 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 self. Oh, there's another person. They're in my way. Self, 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 self. Jesus, oh, look, Jesus. Jesus can make me a better version of myself. Oh, worship was good today. It made me feel good about myself. And if you're not careful, you worship self. And self is an idol. And you're promoting self, esteeming self. You're taking selfies and have little room to do what Jesus said, deny yourself which paradoxically brings you and I the greatest source of our happiness. That's the way that we become better and brighter and the way that we make the world better and brighter. Most of you know we've been in Revelation. I won't go back uh, to too much repetition, but we've been in Revelation. You know, Revelation has so much symbolism and so much fascination, so much uh, conundrum, so much confusion. It adds to our thinking, but it brings some clarity and some beauty. It has, uh, when it comes to symbolism, you think of things like, I mean, we could go all day, but you think of the seven seals and the seven churches uh, and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. You think of the wedding feast of the lamb and the lamb and the scroll and the throne and the great white throne judgment and the fall of Babylon. Uh, you think of the uh, judgment of evil, which is in graphic detail in Revelation. I hope you can grasp some of the symbolism thereof. And then there is the picture of heaven, a God restoring what is right with humanity, between him and humanity, and making everything right. And salvation, listen, the message is salvation is for all, and Revelation picks that up. Remember, heaven will be a place where every tongue, tribe, and nation is there. Everyone who's willing, everyone uh, who accepts Christ is there and that's this picture of revelation but we've uh, we've jumped into the first part of this book this letter that old man john wrote from the island of patmos and we're looking at this seven letters and the seven letters to the to the churches we've uh, sort of poetically d- described as letters to lost disciples so uh, again symbolism if you're out today and someone says hey Y'all been looking at Revelation and what are those seven lampstands? You ought to be able to say, hey, they're not really lampstands, they're churches. And then they ask you, hey, what are those seven churches? Are y'all going to be in trouble? Can you name them? Laodicea and Ephesus and Philadelphia and Sardis and Smyrna and Pergamum. And then what we're going to look at today, Thyatira. And we're going to look at that in just a, a little bit. But these seven churches, there's some, some things have, they have in common and then there's some unique things about them. They're all in this uh, Mediterranean world. And Jesus, uh, through an angel, uh, speaks to them and uh, tells them, hey, here's who I am. It, it, it ought to always start with Jesus. Everything about your life should start with him. But hey, here's, uh, here's what I see in you. And oftentimes that's a praise. And then, hey, here's what I have against you. We don't like that phrase, but it's uh, an offer that actually is beautiful because it offers reproof and gives you and I an opportunity uh, to repent. And look, you know you need to repent. You may not be repenting, but you know you need to. If you're sitting next to someone you live with, they know you need some repentance. So that reproof, that that charge of, hey, I have something against you is actually good. That's how you can you and I can grow to be better and brighter. So let's, let's look at this, Revelation chapter two, just a few verses today. This um, letter, this church, this city, church in this city is the smallest of the churches. And, but it, it, it's allotted the most, the longest of the letters. And again, we won't get into it, but let's just read a few verses here. Revelation 2, 18 to 21, um, Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that you, your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You saw that theme, Jesus, the angel Jesus. And then um, here's what's good. And then here's a charge that I have against you. So this church, again, the smallest of them, but important. They didn't have any flash. The church, like the community that they lived in, didn't have a big, it wasn't a port city, didn't have fashion like some of the others, didn't have the cultural influence uh, like Laodicea and Ephesus and Philadelphia and some of them, small, and it was kind of a blue collar. But notice what was praised, their, their faithful endurance, their love, their service, but they were tolerating sin. They were, some things were happening in the world, in their community, and that was weird. It was immoral. It pulled people away from each other and from God. It was injurious. It was harmful. It brought great damage. Yet they were tolerating that. And so we see this reproof for this church. Notice the description of Jesus. Remember, it starts with him. Each one do all seven lampstands slash churches. And it described Jesus this way, that he had eyes of fire. Now, what might be the symbolism there? What, is, what does that mean? Now, if you go to seminary, you'll take a class, multiple classes called hermeneutics. It's the principles and processes of biblical interpretation. A lot of science and a little bit of art. And one of the foundational things, uh, I see Van over there, I'm right, aren't I? And Van knows this, but it, you interpret scripture with scripture. So it's really important, especially with things that aren't certain, is you look at other pieces of scripture. So we'll do this with this, but it says Jesus has eyes of fire. Let me just put it this way. You can't fake him out. You can't fake Jesus out. I was somewhere this week. I try not to give away the perpetrator, but I was somewhere this week with a mother and uh, two of her children. And she went to be with another of her children, a, a distance from us. And so she essentially left one in, let's just say not with me. I was not responsible, but she left one in my vicinity. How about that? One in my observable vicinity. And this child saw some fruit snacks there and was just eating the fruit snacks. Now I probably should have intervened. I did not. I chose to just, you know, stay in my own business. But this child went to some fruit snacks, opened them up, ate one, went to that, opened up, ate one. I think it was about five that he ate. And when mom came back, she had fetched the other child, she came back, and the little munchkin said, hey, mom, can I have a, a fruit snacks? And I, it was as if, you know, apparently the kid had to have approval if he ate something, the little kid, and he played his mom. He played his mom. She had eyes for that one, but she didn't have eyes for this one. And look, we can do that, right? I mean, we can do that. This mama got played. Y'all think I said anything? I'm not going to throw that little kid under the bus. I was him once. But she got played. She didn't have eyes of fire. Look what it says in Hebrews 4, 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, his eyes of fire. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of fire of, of him to whom we must give account. Look how the prophet Isaiah put it this way. Isaiah 29, 15, woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? There was a book that I read uh, several months back uh, entitled, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. In this book, it's a business book. You'll see it on uh, business management or leadership shelves at local bookstores. Um, this book 
uh, talks about the myriad of ways that we use for deception and even that we're in ways that we're, we deceive ourselves. And the essence of the book, many, many ways that we do this, but it says that we, um, we take a lot of credit and don't take much blame. And that if we see someone else in bad behavior, well, we attach, we attribute that to flawed character. But if someone catches us with bad behavior, well, we credit that to uh, just extraordinarily trying circumstances. In other words, if, if you're yelling at your kid, then you have an anger problem. But if you catch me yelling at my kid, hey, they did something. They had some misbehaving going on. And there's a myriad of ways like this that we deceive ourselves. And there, listen, there's something you may resist this, which is part of the problem. But hey, you don't take, we don't take enough blame and we, we take too much credit. Uh, honestly, I sat with someone a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, oh, we entered a conversation. And I thought it was going to go this way. And he was blaming and, you know, taking credit. And I'm like, man, you know what? He's got it. I can spot it in him, but I know that I have it in me. Another book, um, Egonomics states, again, a popular business book, but it, it talks about in one particular st- research study that people in the office believe that 83% of their decisions are good decisions, but only 27% of their co-workers' decisions are good decisions. When it comes to our mistakes, when it comes to our ego, when it comes to decisions, when it comes to the way that we live, there are just a ton of ways that we uh, practice deception, and again at times self-deception, where we don't see, and the truth about you is you miss the truth about you. And so listen, as spooky as Hebrews 4.13 can sound to you, and as scary as Isaiah 29.15 can be to your soul today, let me say to you that it actually could be great comfort to know that his eyes penetrate, that he sees the deepest part of you. If you read Psalm 139, somewhat famous, but at the end there's a prayer, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. In other words, God, I want you now to enter into the deepest part of me. But you go up to the first part of Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2, and it already says, hey, God, you know everything about me. Isn't that kind of funny? Like, God, my life is laid bare. That's the point of that worship. He begins that song saying, hey, God, you know everything about me. If you keep reading that after verse 1 and 2, you know when I'm lying down, you know when I'm sitting up, you know uh, everything about me. You knitted me in my mother's womb. You know everything about me. But later, search me, O God. So do you see that? I think there's a beauty there. Hey, God knows it all, but we need to take time to say, hey, God, would you know me at the deepest level? Would you help me uh, know myself? I've shared this with some of you before, but look, uh, some of you don't know me. For some of you, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not an influencer on Instagram, but I'm somewhat of a public figure for some of you. I'm the handsome bald guy that speaks from up front. That's, you, you, you don't know me. Uh, my friends know me a little bit better. Many of you are friends. Uh, if you're wondering if you are, you are. But many of your friends, and so you know things about me, some of the great things and some of the not so great things about me. But look, my, 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 my family knows me better than my friends. And my wife, Susan, of 24 years, uh, knows me better than any of my friends. And I know me, look, I know me better than she knows me. There's some things about me that she doesn't know. But here's the thing, God knows me more than I know me. And those are the eyes of fire. And so what could be a source of great fear and trepidation 
could also be a source of great comfort. Hey, God, would you shine your light on me? Would your eyes of fire penetrate? Would you help me grasp the truth? Would you help me learn about my blind spots? Would you help me see what I need to see? And would you help me see sin like you want me to see sin? And would you help me see my Savior like I need to see my Savior? The second metaphor uh, at this church um, in Revelation 2, 18 to 21 that we saw is the feet of bronze. What is it with this phrase? This phrase is used also in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And the idea there, again, a little bit of hermeneutics, keeping a lot of it from you, but the idea here is, immobil- uh, is immovability, strength. It's the strength of God. This is, this is Jesus saying, I am strong and I will be strong on your behalf. When I was a freshman in college, I went to Daytona Beach, Florida for the entire summer. Campus Crusade for Christ, called Crew Now, had a summer project, and I was one of 70, uh, almost 80 students who took part in this three-month project. I had roommates that I worked with. P- part of what we did four days uh, during the week, we had worship, and we, we had service projects, and a lot of good things, a lot of training, and uh, just discipleship. But we had jobs, and I, I, I worked at a local hotel with some guys, and we would walk home from the hotel that we worked at, Monday through Thursday to our hotel where we lived and had fun. Uh, guys and girls, again, college students from all over the country, really fun time. And we would walk by this a small engine repair shop, a, an old man named Ernie. He was a silver-haired guy. The hair that he had left was silver-haired, piercing cobalt blue eyes, uh, had a tattoo, which is crazy for his age at the time. This is in the 80s, mid-80s. And we'd walk by Ernie, and we just had some rapport. We got eye contact once, and then we started talking and telling jokes, being sarcastic with each other. And then uh, um, he just had some fun stuff at, the, at his uh, repair shop. And we would uh, arm wrestle. They had a checkerboard uh, out front, and some of the guys would do that. And we would arm wrestle. And Ernie took me. And then he took me again and again and again. And like every day we'd stop by, and my guys would give me a hard time. Derek Tannen from Auburn University Montgomery. Greg Allen from East Tennessee State University. Darren Yamada from the University of Hawaii. Doug Leatherman from Ohio State. These were the guys. Robert Green from Mississippi State. And I would arm wrestle Ernie, and every time Ernie would take me. And then we had a week off where we didn't work and we had other things in our schedule, so I didn't see Ernie. And we found out even before then that Ernie was going to have a week off. So I had two weeks to prepare to come back and arm wrestle Ernie. And I trained, I learned some tactics. There wasn't the internet back then, by the way, but I connected with a book at the library and I learned about arm wrestling. And I just knew with some training, a couple of weeks, that I was going to take old man Ernie. And guess what? I needed, I needed the dub. I needed the dub. I knew I did. My friends were cheering me on, or were they? But the day came, and Ernie took me again. I never could take old man Ernie in arm wrestling. Here's what I want to say about God's strength. The sooner you realize that you'll never out-wrestle God, the more joy you'll have, the better your life will be. And that is God. That is his strength. He is immovable. You're not going to move him. And so understand that. Understand. Listen, I know you like me, if you're getting serious as a disciple, you will wrestle with God. Jacob wrestled with God. You know, the name Israel comes from wrestling with God. You will wrestle with God. But like I said, the sooner you realize that you'll never beat him, the more joy you'll have in your life, the better your life will be. And so this strength, here's the, here's the even greater thing about that as a disciple. I will share with you that I 
have to realize at times. Sometimes I block it out. Sometimes I doubt it. Sometimes I just move and I just get in a a stale place. But listen to me. His strength is my strength. His power is my power. I'm not going to lie to you. As I follow Jesus today, after all these years, I need his strength in a particular area of my life. And I'm calling for it. I'm counting on it. His strength can be your strength. Where do you need it today? If you're going to follow more closer, cl- more closely with him, understand his strength will be your strength. His power will be your power. In this letter, we see in verse 19, I don't know if we can put it back up, but in, in verse 19, if you could, it talks about, uh, back to the Revelation 2, um, if we could, sorry, I'm, here we go. I know your works, your love and faith. I'm in verse 19, your patient endurance. And listen to the last sentence there, and that your latter works exceed the first. Here's what I love. Remember Jesus, uh, remember there's, um, I know your deeds, there's praise, then there's reproof. And so here's the praise. And what I love about this is God celebrates progress. And some of you are so, um, so caught up in perfection. So unwilling to forgive yourself. Look, God has forgiven you, but the struggle is will you forgive yourself? Uh, you say you believe in God, but you don't believe that God believes in you. And celebrate, listen to me, celebrate progress. That's what I love about this letter. He, he's saying this, that you've grown up a little bit. There's growth, maturity, and fruit. But hey, this year, you're better than you were last year. There are some things you weren't doing, some deeds that you weren't doing last year, you were doing this year. And I love that. You ever, you guys ever heard about crutching? You know what crutching is? Anybody use that expression or is it just something I had out on the West Coast? Crutching is this idea. Let, let me explain it to you. I didn't see anybody nod uh, their head. But uh, crutching is this idea. We use it against uh, spouses. You, like, let's use it with spouses, parents, and kids. And I think you'll, as I describe it, I think you'll see yourself maybe in this. Like early on, especially in marriage with Susan, I, I would say something like, oh, Susan, there's, there's just nothing to eat in this house. Of course, I'd be in the kitchen. And then where, where would she come? To the kitchen. And what would she, like Jesus, she had eyes of fire. She could see food that I couldn't see. And what, what's happening next? She's making food for me. That's what's happening there, right? I'm crutching her. Oh, well, I don't see, there's just nothing to eat. Oh, Susan, uh, this was early on. Susan, um, I just can't make bacon. You know, you make bacon better than, than I do. And Susan, as a newlywed, is like, I, I do? And then she's making the bacon for whatever we're having, breakfast or breakfast for dinner. Y'all ever do that? Or whatever, like I'm crutching her. And let me just say, if you're judging me harshly, through the years, she's crutched me a few times as well. And, you know, a kid, think about a kid, a three-year-old kid. Mom, would you open this Capri Sun? Well, sure, you're adorable. You're three years old. I'll open the Capri Sun. When they're 15, not so adorable. And the crutching is this idea when we act like we can't do something, we don't take responsibility for our lives. We refuse to engage in the deed. We refuse to take initiative. Uh, Can I just say to you, we need initiative. Listen, fellas, you need initiative. The number one complaint women have in life spiritually in marriage is a passive man. You could crush it at work, but you're not giving emotionally at home and mentally there. Listen, take the initiative. And crutching is when you don't. Crutching is when you uh, use a weakness or inflate your weakness so that someone else will step up and do it for you. In this church, look, they stopped crutching God as much as they used to. They, they were different. They were taking responsibility. How about you? 
what an invitation for us. I see this in you that you're now doing some deeds that you weren't doing this time last year. There was growth there. Oh, what a gift. What a gift you give to God in worship. What a gift you give to your church. What a gift you give to your family and to the circle of friends around you that are counting on you when you make progress, when you don't crutch them and crutch God, but you take responsibility. There's a little book almost in Revelation. It's called Jude. It has one chapter. And in there, it talks about 23 and 24. It talks about how you are responsible, not the preacher, not the church. You're responsible for your spiritual growth. Quit crutching and grow. What deeds, what next steps do you need to take to be closer as a disciple of Jesus Christ? They were, um, the charge that is against them is, as you saw, that they were tolerating sin. They were casual with some sin. It was the juicy kind. It was the fleshly kind, as you saw. You'll see and maybe read on your own Jezebel. Is that an actual person? Is it symbolism? You see Jezebel in the Old Testament. Uh, what's happening there? I'll let you uh, uh, study that on your own. But here it is. Uh, it's real immorality, though. And at the time, the church, as always, there's the culture. There's the church and the church in the city. And then there's the, the question. I've, I posed this to you a couple of times. Does the church influence the city, the culture? Does the culture of the city influence the church? What happens here? And in this... Uh, Thyatira, this uh, blue-collar town, they had some festivals, some religious festivals. Isn't this crazy? Some religious festivals. And sometimes we go nuts in New Orleans and Vegas and places, and, and we act like it's the first time, and um, there's an evolution of debauchery and evil. But look, you read these stories of old, and you see the evil. You see the immorality. And there were some people and leaders in the church that didn't think it was weird. Here's what was happening. There were festivals, uh, and there were, um, they were being seduced. They were being invited in. Uh, there was uh, extreme forms of revelry and partying. There was the worship of the god Apollos. There was eating of food and offering it to idols. There was uh, not the good wine that we sing about, but the wine that was uh, used in excess. And though there was growth, the spiritual growth, just like can be in your life, they were looking past some things. Can I say, can I ask you today, what are you looking past? But if, if God puts the eyes of fire on you today, right where you are, what does he see in you? What would be worth celebrating in your life? What is the good work that he's doing? But if his eyes of fire penetrate you today, those feet, those strong feet of bronze that you can wrestle with but never win, what is it that you're being casual about? I've stood up here a couple times in this series and challenged you, and I said, hey, look, at a little bit of risk, I've told you, you can't live any way you want to live. My heart can be hard. My neck can be stiff. My feet are made of clay. I am a sinner like you. So don't hear anything different when I say this, but I'm astonished sometimes when I talk as a pastor to many people of what they're willing to tolerate in their spiritual life and to think that God is just going to look the other way. In Revelation, we hit it last week a little bit with Sardis. Remember, anybody remember it says your, your clothes are stained or soiled, the garments are soiled. And throughout scripture, from beginning to end, that's a metaphor, a metaphor of clothing, of things that look good on you and things that don't look good on you. You guys play that game? Ladies, I know you do. 
Uh, recent surveys show that men spend a lot more time looking in the mirror and checking themselves out than we've ever admitted to. But what looks good on you? What doesn't look good on you? We're talking fashion, all right? Let's don't go far with that. But, what, you know, there's some things that flatter you and some things that don't flatter you. And some of you play that game. But spiritually, it's all the more true with all the more opportunity for influence. What looks good on you? In Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 through 10, really, Paul tells early disciples, he says, to set your affections on things above, where Christ, where your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your affections, your mind, on things above. And then it tells us, there's some things that we ought to wear and some things we ought not to wear. It tells us uh, to put off er our earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, uh, to lust and evil desires and greed. It says, get rid of anger and rage and malice and slander and evil speech and do not lie. And then it says, I love this because we need it. It says, forgive one another and forbear with one another. I love that. I was in a, a little meeting this week and uh, a good friend, a godly friend said a couple things and it seemed like it was kind of sarcastic and cutting. I'm like, hey, that's my job to be cutting and sarcastic. But I, I didn't know if we were good. I thought, are we good? Are we, you know, are we good here? Is, what, something, is there something between us? So I text him. I'm like, hey, are we good? And he said, oh, we're fine. Sorry. Boom, 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 boom. And that's an example of why we need to forgive and forbear. It tells us to put off those things, but it tells us to put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness and patience oh and love and it's love that keeps us in the perfect bond of peace so put off and put on and oh by the way because we don't always have on what we need to have on we need to forgive one another and we need to bear with one another you need that i need that like that's the that's the the grease that keeps this thing moving that keeps the car driving that keeps marriages going it keeps church staff teams functioning that keeps your group together your friendships the people that are helping you live out the one another's it's forgive forbear with one another put these things on so when you take when you take the list in Scripture of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, um, anger, rage, greed, malice, slander, evil speech, lying, when you take that, the sum of it, and you look at other portions of Scripture that have similar, when you look at Revelation and what's been said in the churches, I want us to use an acronym, and I want to take a moment in the, as we round toward home, for you to look at the screen and to reflect the truth of this. And so, Lauren, anytime you guys want to make your way up and you guys can uh, get ready to close us out probably in five to seven minutes, I want you to play some music in the background. I want to ask you, and yes, you at home, to take a moment as we put this up. Now, here's the acronym. Let me put it up on for you. Um, think of this the clothing metaphor, rags. What we should put off. The R in rags, this acronym, is resentment. This could be defined as mismanaged anger or bitterness. The A is anxiety. Listen to how I phrase this. The inability or refusal to trust God. Some of us, man, we give ourselves a pass when it comes to worry. I want to challenge you today to work on worry. Don't give up on your worry. Don't, don't let the enemy have his way with you. Can I, can I ask you to submit that to him? The inability or refusal, you can be active or passive with it, but just to trust God, it, it, it's a, anxiety reflects a passivity or a timidity. And some of you are just laying down. I am a worrier. Look, look at me. No, you're not. 
You may worry and you may worry excessively. You may be in the grip of fear, but you're not a worrier. That's not who you are. Greed is mismanaged desires of all kinds. Superiority, self-righteousness, and contempt for others. So there you have our, uh, our metaphor, our acronym. So let's take each at a time, and I want you to think about your life. Some of you are snuggled up close to somebody. We're not talking about the person you're sitting next to. You, you. So take resentment. What is your irritability these days? Remember 1 Corinthians 13 says love is a lot of things. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't boast. It's not rude or self uh, serving it doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in the truth da, 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 da. bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things but in there couched in there it says love's not irritable i know some people they've been married a long time they're divorced now they just couldn't live with each other they were just irritable so with a lot at stake i ask you what is your irritability these days would you be honest are you becoming less and less easily irritated how about bitterness and unforgiveness number four do you attack pout or withdraw from others man at 11 o'clock I'm kind of hoping Susan doesn't come to church because she knows I've got the spiritual gift of pouting but God's working on me next A anxiety, fear, worry what's the discouragement factor in your life these days Man, what a tool of the enemy to discourage you. Do you find that you're more frequently allowing concerns to motivate you to prayer? That'd be a good thing. I sat this week with a friend. And all I could think of is 1 Peter 5, 7. To cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Brother, I love you. And that's my prayer. Number three, do you have more or fewer fears about money job or what other people think of you? like the church at Thyatira, any growth here? Number four, do you allow your fears to keep you from doing what God wants? Look, I heard from so many of you when we talked about Philadelphia and the church of open doors. Look, walk through that door. If God's open, walk through that door. Greed. Are you becoming more or less a victim of your appetites now than you used to be? By the way, it's celebrated. Every time you look at a screen, fulfilling your appetite is celebrated. But oh, what emptiness it leads to. Is self-control going up, down, or neutral? Look, let me say to you, it is, it's a challenge in the world we live in. But it is not impossible. Three, are you living with more openness and less hiddenness than you used to? living more of your life in the light? Do you find what you desire and enjoy increasingly in line with God, with what God wants for you? And lastly, superiority, you're becoming less self-preoccupied these days. How often in conversations do you remark on the positive characteristics of others? Can I tell you, when you celebrate others around you, 
the scripture talks about the one another's when you call out and encourage someone around you when you see in them listen that breaks something in you that needs to be broken it releases something that needs to be released in you speak words to other people you'll be fine number three how often do you tell negative stories or communicate cynicism young people wear cynicism like it's a badge of honor it's not despair is not far behind cynicism I want to say be careful number four and lastly are you talking to God more about the sins out there in the world or the hidden faults deep within yourself let me pray over you God, I would pray that this would be ennobling today that though somewhat hard, that Lord, your grace would come to us. The grace that tells us that we're loved and we need to move towards you and away from self. And now from the field of neurology to psychology and sociology one study after another is showing us the emptiness of self-esteem and self-promotion of appetite gratification father would be open to the fact that you are right that blessedness comes to those know they need a savior and that our sin is very serious we don't have to yell and scream and work hard to get people to hate cancer if people love life then we are going to hate anything that destroys life and this Jesus, this Savior who speaks to these seven churches, these letters to the lost disciples that could speak to us today. Uh, This Jesus said he came that we might have life and might have it abundantly. But there is a contrast. There's an enemy. There's someone over there who wants to, to, who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And as serious as cancer is to human life, is sin to our spiritual eternity. God, would you work in hearts? God, we're anxious and depressed and isolated and we don't know if we should go out and connect and we're disjointed and there is pain and distance. And God, would you work? Would you create disciples who make disciples at Fondren and beyond? And would you help us be a healing balm to be an answer in the midst of what's happening now? In wise and safe ways, may we love each other closely. Lord, I want to thank you today that 
what has brought me great fear brings me great comfort. The feet of bronze, the eyes of fire, the greatness of our Savior. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing.